Super Talk Mississippi media production. Hi, this is Dr. Andy Barlow with the Chiropractic Physician Center of Tupelo and author of the number one bestseller, The Code Breaker. Are you sick and tired of the medical merry-go-round? Are you looking for a potential solution to your health problem? Be sure and listen to our podcast, The Code Breaker. What's up on a Tuesday? I'm Brian Scott Rippey, my co-conspirator is Michael Borky. We appreciate you hanging out with us and waiting a day past the weekend. I apologize. I should have uh, kind of put two and two together on Friday. I uh, we had scheduling conflicts on Sunday, and then I had to uh, I had to go get a filling on Monday in Jackson. So there really wasn't much of a window, but wasn't a huge deal because I think it worked out because we do have signing day on Wednesday, and so I, I didn't think it would be a huge deal if. Uh, if we kind of flipped it around, because it wouldn't make a ton of sense to have a podcast Wednesday morning and then cover signing day, because, like, I don't know, Tuesday, Thursday seemed better this week. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. What's up, man? Not a whole lot. Just um, still relishing in the fact that Drew Brees is the greatest quarterback in the history of professional football. But other than that, you know, just a regular old Tuesday. Yeah, no kidding. That was uh, pretty impressive last night. I, um... It was a pretty decent weekend of NFL football in general. It was kind of a weird week, I thought. Uh, you kind of get that towards the end of the year as teams' motivations change and things like that. Obviously, no college football. Did you watch a bunch of football this weekend? I uh... I, I did, yeah. And, I mean, one, you had to see you know Eli's final send-off because unless I'm completely missing something, like all of the rhetoric from New York is that of this was his final game in our city and thank you so much for the memories and all that stuff. Um, so I had to watch that, of course, and uh, pay close mind. But I was really focused in on the Seahawks and Panthers and 49ers and Falcons for obvious reasons. And we got one of two. So somehow, some way, the 49ers lost to the freaking Falcons on Sunday, which helps the Saints a ton. But as you said, weird weekend. Like Dan Quinn might be saving his job, which doesn't make any sense, but he might be doing it. Uh, the Titans somehow, I, I mean, who knows what the Titans or the Texans are at this point. I guess we'll see again in a couple of weeks. But. Well, it's like they got Texans. Like, the Titans had been really hot and playing actually really consistent, and then they kind of pulled a Texans playing against the Texans. I found that interesting. Um, I did a terrible job teasing this podcast, by the way, when we got in. We have Zach Barry on today. He is the recruiting analyst for Rebel Grove. Borky's known him a long time. He runs Red Cup Rebellion as well. Um, I got to know him a little bit. I would say about 18 months ago, I would go on the Red Cup Rebellion podcast some and got to know him through that, and then we just kind of text about back and forth. Uh, he was a smart guy, knows a ton of recruiting. Um, I mean, that's not surprising. He's a recruiting analyst for Rebel Grove, but I thought he gave some really good insight. Um, as I kind of told him, and like we've talked about this either on or off air before, uh, I don't really, uh, we don't really cover recruiting at Super Talk. I mean, we're a radio company that's kind of expanding into. Uh, kind of the online reporting and, and podcasting and all that stuff type of realm. And, like, with me and Hey Dad being one-man bands and you and Richard on the show, like, that doesn't really fit our market, I guess, if that makes any sense. So, yeah, and we can't do it. Like, we've tossed it around. I think I've told you about this, but for those of you listening, we've tossed recruiting coverage around. It's just, it's probably, you either have to go all in and do it all the time or only do it on, like, signing days. Like, this week, we're covering recruiting, of course, and we get a guy like Zach who's locked in all year long to, to help us out with that. But there's just no way we have enough time or resources, specifically on the radio side, to 
always pay attention to recruiting because it is so fluid and there's so much misinformation. Like the same player, and this isn't really taking a shot, but it's going to sound like one. Some of these recruiting analysts that work for these websites that cover particular schools, you can have the same kid give the same quote, and the article from the Georgia site and the article from the Texas site are worded, I mean, it's, they're completely different. Like you would think the kid, the Georgia locker or Texas lock from the same interview. The way everything is spawned and the way information is given out, it's just, it's, it's hard to follow because nobody really knows what's going on or everybody's got some kind of a spin. And, I mean, these schools offer, you know, 200 kids. And how are you going to keep up with their visit schedule and all that stuff? That's just, that's not something that we can do. I think it would be a waste of our time. And 99% of our listening audience, if we were just to throw out players' names like, hey, this kid's got an old Miss official visit this weekend, we'd have to spend 10 minutes telling you who the kid is and where he's from. It's just, I'll leave it up to the uh, the recruiting people to uh, to do that, and we'll just we'll cover it around the signing days, and and that's about it. It's just hard to follow, and I admire people that can cover recruiting because it would frustrate the hell out of me. Yeah, because I asked Zach about that, and I agree with what you're saying. Because with one, like you see with the newspapers too, with one guy on each beat, it's next to impossible. I mean, like just to try to to fully be in recruiting all the time. That's why it's more. I guess uh, palatable for those. Uh, they, I think I, I hate using the term fan sites, but like that, like you know that rivals two four seven. You get what I'm saying? Because I think fan sites are kind of used as a dig against them at times. I didn't, mean, I don't mean it that way, but like you get what I'm saying. The rivals team, the two four seven team, because that's kind of the backbone of their national company anyway. Is the recruiting and the rankings and all that? Anyway, I don't know. Uh, Zach did. Uh, it's a really fascinating interview. We'll get to that in a second. Um, we talked a lot about kind of how things have changed, I guess, or really not changed since Kiffin has taken over. Uh, obviously, they got a couple recommitments yesterday. Um, I say recommitments. They got a quarterback commitment, and then they had a running back recommit. And then Eli Acker, the offensive lineman out of Columbus, pulled the A.J. Brown with the I'm not going anywhere deal from Wolf of Wall Street, which is always entertaining to uh, entertaining clip to watch. Um, so before we get to Zach's interview, and I, I realize I just completely zagged when we were talking about NFL football because my brain is all over the place this morning. I, That's uh, all right, man. It's a podcast. We can do what we want. I'm never, I'm never the first one to the studio. Like I got here at eight thirty today to interview Zach, and like the guys up here normally always here. So I didn't, I don't ever think to bring my key anymore. And I was the first one here, so my my morning was off to a roaring start with being here with no key. Um. Anyway, so for guys that don't, here's recruiting talk for dudes that don't cover a bunch of recruiting. It seems like so far Ole Miss's kind of general idea here is to kind of keep most of this. They have 17 guys committed right now, plus the tight end transfer, Chase Rogers, the kid from ULL that announced he was coming. Uh, I think, well, that was a September deal, sat out this past year, eligible to play this coming year. So 18 total. It seems like for the most part, um, they're going to key in on a lot of guys and try to keep guys and then push a few to sign in February. And then once they get past this early period, kind of reevaluate the board and kind of maybe, as Zach alludes to here in a second, you heard a bit, maybe not a clean slate, but kind of um, kind of actually kind of take a breath and sit back and reevaluate things and where they want to close in February. Um, because as much as has been made of this early signing day, and you saw this last year with the way Ole Miss closed, you can make some hay in February even after kind of this initial rush. 
Oh, for sure. Especially if it's a guy like Lane Gibbons, who, who, I mean, even his one year at Tennessee, didn't he have two top ten recruiting classes? I mean, his transition class was a big one. So, yeah, I mean, a guy with, with his name, with his recruiting acumen, who will also have a full staff in place by then. Uh, I mean, that's what we've talked about really since he got hired. Is This early period was just the same. Keep the guys that you want, and it, it looks like they, I don't want to say ran off, but that's what they did. It looks like they ran off a couple of guys on that list that uh, maybe their evaluation didn't match uh, Matt Luke and company's evaluation, and they've encouraged at least one guy to go elsewhere. Uh, it's largely keeping this class intact and go headhunting uh, in February. But, I mean, as Zach will tell you, there's a couple of opportunities for Ole Miss to make a few fireworks. You know, nothing crazy. Tomorrow, uh, or today, if you're listening on Wednesday, I know some of you do a couple days out. Uh, anything unexpected that happens is a great thing because all early signing period in a transition class is is just sustaining what they've got. If there is a guy that has four hats on the table and chooses old misses, that's that is ahead of schedule in a transition class because largely it's just keeping the guys that you've got intact. Then making hay in February. Yeah, and I asked Zach to list a couple guys to look out for tomorrow that could kind of flip this uh, and, I guess, swing the proverbial kind of momentum pendulum one way uh, or another there. And he gave a couple of names. One of them is an offensive, not spoiler alert, but like one of them is an offensive tackle prospect um, that Ole Miss and A&M are on one. And a couple are guys they kind of already have in the boat. Josiah Hayes, the defensive tackle out of Horn Lake, is another one. Uh, that kind of Ole Miss still feels like they're in pretty good position with, but John Sumrall at Kentucky, there's a uh, there's a connection there, and I think they felt like they had. I know a couple people from Kentucky actually reached out to me, uh, recruiting expert here, asking about kind of Kentucky's chances, them feeling like they had a good chance once the staff turnover kind of happened, but still feeling pretty good there. It seems like, but anyway, we got into a couple of that. I asked him about Robbie Ashford, and he seemed to believe in. I did a terrible job of wording the way the question, like the way I wanted to ask it, but it did seem like it was just kind of a. Uh, I think he used the phrase like "clean break," kind of one of those things where like he's a fit for a Rich Rod offense. Rich Rod's no longer here. Doesn't make a ton of sense. Like just kind of a a a uh, diverting interest type of thing, I guess. Um, so I found that interesting because the way I asked it was if that had anything to do with them kind of inexplicably going into the spring with the same quarterback room they had last year, which you didn't think would be the case at all. And he didn't seem to think that was the case as much as it was just kind of philosophy and where each side was kind of headed with the new staff. Hmm. I mean, ugh, I, we'll, we'll beat it like a dead horse, but the, just the difference in philosophy in it, at least Ole Miss only had one season to kind of, not ruin it, but, but to change things so it's not a, a massive rebuild for Kiffin. It's not like an Arkansas situation, right, where they had Brett Bielema and brought in Chad Morris to do something and try to flip a roster that is not at all built for his system. And obviously, uh, like I said after his first year, 2-10, I don't care what you're trying to do or what you're left with in the SEC. It's just simply unacceptable. Uh, but at least Ole Miss doesn't have that kind of situation on their hands. Like they, they were building towards an identity that you and I both multiple times this season felt like never fit anyway, but they didn't have a chance to recruit themselves out of what was working uh, and out of what 
will work for Lane Kiffin since they only did it for a season and kept everybody. Yeah, because it's like the, well, I mean, I guess the very extreme example is that you brought up a good one in Arkansas, but I mean, I guess the, the very extreme one is the Georgia Tech Jeff Collins thing from a triple option, like digging yourself, like kind of climbing out of that type of hole. Obviously not that, but it is, I mean, if, if you, to your point, if you had gone two, three, hell, even four, I, I don't see a world where Rich Rod was ever at Ole Miss longer than two, I guess maybe three years if you want to get crazy, but if you got like two, three, four years down the road, like, the way he runs offense and the way he uses the quarterback is so drastically different that you kind of would have been in a hole. I mean, I think you saw it with the receivers thing. They were about to be kind of up shit creek without a paddle to some degree at the receiver position, and then you get Battle and Gregory back. Um, I don't know how much that helps because I think there was a reason they weren't playing, but how much of that is on the staff and how much of that is the offense they run? Like, they were heading in a very... I guess specific direction in their offense was going to like take a very uh, firm mold, and I, I, I guess it's good that they got out of that before getting too far down the road because Kiffin was a more traditional. He and Levy are going to kind of gravitate towards a more traditional uh, spread offense and kind of towards pocket passing and stuff like that. Obviously, there's I mean using the word traditional in college football uh, is kind of a uh, interesting term anyway because there's so much differences in the way teams run offense but I guess what I'm, I'm trying to say is the way Qu- Rich Rodriguez runs offense and the way he uses quarterbacks is drastically different than the quote-unquote norm for a spread for sure and I, I was meaning to ask you uh, yesterday on the show we just uh, we had to do weather uh, most of the time uh, by the way there was a uh, 11 at least I saw a report this morning there was 11 tornadoes that touched down the state yesterday so um, just a rough day, but I was going to ask you if uh, the commitment of Cade Renfro, uh, the quarterback from Texas, I think he's only been a starter for one year, so he's kind of under-evaluated, uh, was developing a pretty good offer sheet. But a very different quarterback than that of Robbie Ashford, who uh, decommitted from Ole Miss, looks like he's going out to the West Coast. But is Giffen and the new staff getting a guy like him as their quarterback in this class an indicator of what kind of quarterback they're looking for, or is it just, you know, they need to sign one every class because the potential of transfer is extremely high. Even after this spring, I know Corral and uh, Tisdale both said that they were sticking around. Uh, I mean, that very well could change in the spring if it becomes clear that one of them is ahead of the other. Like, just because they're coming back for now doesn't mean they'll be back for the season. Does that tell you anything about how – they're going to use and how they envision the quarterback position being because Renfro, even though, I mean, I've looked at a highlight tape, so take it with a grain of salt, but he appears to be a guy that uh, is a more traditional quarterback versus an athlete that can throw the football occasionally, which is kind of what they've got in John Rice Plumley. Am I reading too far into that? Do you think that means anything? No, because I don't. I don't think quarterback it, is a more traditional one. I don't think it takes a genius to to kind of put together that you would think, at least on the surface, Tisdale and Corral have a bit of an upper hand maybe with this change in offense than a Plumlee. Um, really, I guess with Plumlee, it's going to come down to whether he can really throw or not. Because if, if he can stand in the pocket and make throws down the field, which you've seen little to no evidence of already, but in his defense, you didn't really see a ton of that with anyone. You saw some of it with Corral. Um, you haven't seen much evidence of that. If he can do that, then they've got... They've got a, a really ridiculous type of weapon on their hand. Obviously, if he can't, 
it's it you're really kind of giving an advantage to Corral and Tisdale there, whereas you're talking about the Renfro kid, more of a traditional pocket passer. I mean, I, I yes, I do think there is something to that. I don't think you're reading too much into it. I mean, it's just, I mean, Lane Kiffin, the the way John Rice Plumley played and his skill set and the kind of Robbie Ashford type skill set as well is going to be a a much more difficult fit uh, in in Lane Kiffin's system unless they change what they do. But I, like again, I don't think it takes really a genius to kind of figure that out. I, I I mean, we were we talked about that as soon as it happened and Tisdale took his name out of the portal from day one when we were talking about I don't remember if it was last week or two weeks ago about who the starting quarterback is next year, who has the upper hand in that race and all that, like I, that, that that seemed fairly obvious to me. And we both were, that was kind of the, it seemed like one of the things that initially stuck out to both of us. Yeah. And as we've said a few times too, I mean, that system last year did John Rice Plumley no favor throwing the football. I mean, I understand why they got him out on the edges. I really do, because if there was nothing there, he could pull the ball down and run. But he, I mean, he's terrible throwing on the run. Awful. And that's, almost exclusively what they asked him to do. And it was, as we've said, it was, you know, Ely left, Plumley right, roll out right, throw the ball in the dirt, punt the football. Like, that was most of the offense. And, I mean, if anybody can get the most production through the air out of John Rice Plumley, it's Lane Kiffin. Um, so, I, I mean, I believe him when it's an open competition, but still, I the system did him no favors, but the arm talent, certainly, he is, I mean, he's number three in, in that quarterback room at best right now, just from pure arm talent. But if Kiffin can make him competent, as you said, the, the weapon is, I mean, just unreal. But I still think they would be best suited, if, if they can get him to agree to do it, uh, to have him in more of a flexible role. Uh, they called Taysom Hill last night a uh, the Joker. I think it's what they called him. Um, that, like that was his position because he did everything. I think he would Ole Miss would be better suited if he was lining up in the slot at flex at running back at times, also playing some quarterback, especially in the red zone. Uh, and, but we're just so far out uh, to even know for sure. But I think there's a couple of clear signs of where uh, the quarterback position at Ole Miss moving forward is going to be, and. Um, I think those signs are pretty clear with Tisdale coming back, Corral not transferring, and then signing Cade Renfro instead of a more dual-threat guy. Like, I haven't heard a word about the uh, the quarterback from Madison Central anymore either. I mean, that was a guy that Ole Miss very well was possibly going to sign, especially if Ashford uh, still decommitted and went somewhere else, and that is a run-first quarterback. So seems to be a clear shift in direction from one coaching staff to the other. Yeah, and the last thing with Plumlee is we kind of talked in the ground the baseball thing and how that kind of factors in to everything. So definitely a philosophy shift at quarterback and how they're going. I mean, you're going to see them recruit different types of quarterbacks than you saw uh, over the last year. Uh, But, again, I don't think that was really much of a shock to anybody. Uh, Kind of going around elsewhere, they've got three offensive linemen committed in this class so far. They've got Acker, as I mentioned earlier, the kid out of Columbus. They have Luke Schaus a uh, Brentwood, Tennessee kid, and then they had the kid from Conway, Arkansas. That was really, uh, you heard Zach made an interesting note there, was one of the first guys that Kiffin went to see in Conway, Arkansas. Um, And he had an interesting reason by that, and it really had to do with Sam Pittman 
And uh, and Arkansas versus Chad Moore is not making Robert Scott a priority. But I, I found that interesting. You'll hear him talk about that in a second. But they've got three offensive linemen committed in this class. There's a couple that you heard Zach allude to in a minute kind of talk about uh, uh, that could kind of swing this class. Uh, there's a kid they're going up against uh, with A&M. There's a kid that's really kind of gone on their radio. The uh, same kid had kind of gone on been off of their radar it wasn't even in their top 12 as of last year and since kiffin has been like has taken over his they got him on campus for an official visit and things are really apparently trending very positively in that direction uh so i you know offensive line is going to be a pretty big concern for this team going forward i think jack bicknell did kind of an underrated job this year getting that team uh competent up front when they really couldn't and you'll bring some guys back that have some experience uh, playing football together, which is what helped them the last three previous years kind of really formulate a really solid and veteran offensive line. But at the same time, you lose Alex Givens. You feel better about Nick Broker. I guess you lose technically Michael Howard. I don't know how much of a loss that is. But you're going to have to replace some more pieces, and I imagine um, that is a huge priority for Kiffin up here because Ole Miss up front last year was kind of uh, – Really, just every game, it seemed like how are they not going to come apart at the seams was kind of the take I had going into each game. Yeah, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised if they, uh, I mean, we may never know publicly, but if they, they take a hard look at the transfer portal on both sides of the line of scrimmage, to tell you the truth. But if there's a graduate transfer offensive lineman out there somewhere, uh, I think, I can't remember his name, but there was a guy that transferred from, Oh, hell, what was it? Um, FCS school to Auburn, or a small school to Auburn. Um, I can't remember. Anyway, uh, immediate plug-and-play starter that Auburn had, and his name's escaping me, and I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. But I wouldn't be surprised if they, they look at that route as well, because those kind of guys are out there. There are guys that have graduated from smaller schools that have developed into really nice offensive linemen that uh, you could uh, convince to make the jump to the SEC for their final season. I mean, that dude's out there. Uh, Auburn's taking advantage of it, and I'll, I'll remember his name like the second we hang up here. Uh, but wouldn't be surprised if they do that on offensive and defensive lines. He made a point to mention that a couple of times uh, in his, we can call it an inauguration day, because that was more than just a press conference, um, that you have to build rosters differently now. And he specifically mentioned uh, the transfer portal and graduate transfers a couple of times. Uh, I think they're going to look hard at that as well. So I'll tell you what, let's go to Zach's interview, and then we'll come back, wrap up some final thoughts about Ole Miss on signing day, and then get into some football and some other stuff that happened over the weekend. So uh, without further ado, here is Zach Berry, recruiting analyst, Rebel Grove. Really fascinating interview. I learned a lot as someone who's not in the recruiting arena covering this daily uh, at all. Uh, so I learned a lot. He's a uh, smart guy. Hopefully we'll have him back on in February. But anyway, here's Zach Berry. All right, we now welcome on Zach Berry. Good friend of mine, good friend of the show. Um, although this is your first time on this podcast, I guess it's been a, a long, long overdue. But uh, he is a recruiting analyst at Rivals. He runs Red Cup Rebellion. Did I miss anything else? You're also a dad. Your son is with us. This is actually a three-way podcast. That's correct. He is here. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. Uh, that's the only thing that uh, I've been put in charge of, I guess you could say. Um. So how did, we haven't really? Uh, I don't think we've really talked since you started at Rivals. How did that kind of come about? Like, have you always been into recruiting? Like, how did that exactly come about? Always, always been into recruiting. 
I, I will say uh, if we want to if we want to take it way back, um, it's not Thursday, so it's not Throwback Thursday, but we'll get you Throwback Tuesday. I I, I kind of got into recruiting when I was in college, and uh, I was an undergrad at Ole Miss during uh, Ed Orgeron's tenure, and the Joe McKnight recruitment when things really uh, heated up with him, uh, which R.P. To, to McKnight, but um, that was when it, 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 I got interested in recruiting. Things really heated up. It came down to a signing day decision for Joe McKnight. He ultimately did not choose Ole Miss, but from then on, it was just something that I was always interested in, and you know, it's the lifeblood of college football, so it's something that every program has to be good at. If you're not good at recruiting, you know, people always say the Jimmys and the Joes, you got to have those to uh, to win ball games, and and that's you know that's where recruiting comes in. So I've always just been into it. But as far as getting started with rivals, it was just kind of a weird, um, kind of a, I guess a, a, a turn of fate or you know good timing on, on my part. I, I just reached out to them and and asked if, if they might need any uh, additional coverage, and uh, they were having a, a little changeover on their staff, and so. Uh, Neil McCready, the publisher over there, got back with me and and just kind of said, "Yeah, we can uh, we can uh, we can bring you on." And me and uh, he and I do a podcast once a week called the Soft Verbal. If you, if you don't mind me doing some cross promotional stuff, here, <laughs> absolutely but, not. Plug away. <laughs> yeah, so we do the uh, the Soft Verbal once a week. Uh, we'll do one this week, obviously after early signing day. But we we talk recruiting there, and then I, I cover it on the site as well on the message board and. And I've been writing some articles for them when any commitments come through. But, um, but yeah, I've been uh, doing that for, uh, I guess, since July, June or July. And I've been covering recruiting for Red Cup Rebellion for, I guess, going on five years. So as as we were talking of uh, earlier a second before we started recording, obviously at Super Talk we don't really do recruiting. Uh, I mean, we're a radio company that's dipping into kind of like the print not print, but like online reporting side of things. Like, hey, Dad and I are kind of a one man band. Like, it makes it immensely difficult to do recruiting. But one of the things I've always kind of found fascinating by it is there's so many kids on teams' radar. How do you actually figure out? This is just literally me just asking a dumb recruiting question because I'm so fascinated because I've never really covered it. How do you figure out, like, who is actually on their radar and who to monitor? Because that seems like that could get at not out of hand overwhelming one of the two like how do you actually hone in on a group of kids for me as someone who covers it or just as the coaching staff well no i, I imagine the coaching staff zones it but just like for you as, as far as getting information like how do you know who they're ah, okay i got you yeah like it's, <laughs> i was like well, well i'm not on the staff no right. no no because um, there's so many kids out there and obviously like they right. send out a bunch of offers i'm just curious how you guys that cover recruiting actually kind of hone in on who's realistically in it and who's not because i you know i imagine obviously they send out a bunch of offers some actually committable some not like right. i it just seems like a lot to like i guess make sense of or kind of crystallize right and for me it's it starts twitter's is you know it, it's funny recruiting is the lifeblood of college football i would say that twitter is the lifeblood for people that cover college football and I guess just sports in general. Twitter's just such a, a just a bevy of knowledge, and it's just a, a great source for you know looking for information, looking for things. But for me, I, I follow the coaching staff. Uh, they they kind of point you in the right direction when it comes to which players to follow, which players to keep an eye on. Especially now with just 
the Twitter age makes everything a little bit easier. Coaches will often retweet, you know, certain players if they tweet out a, an offer or, uh, you know, they post a picture of, a, of them with a coach and, uh, you know, during an in-home visit, they'll, they'll be sure to retweet it. And then um, furthermore from that, I mean, we have sources around Oxford. Uh, Neil is, is very well sourced. He's been doing this for, for years and years. He knows everybody in the industry, uh, top to bottom, you know, all the way up to um, some of the biggest agents in college football and then all the way down to uh, high school coaches and people around Oxford. But for me, um, I, I worked in the sports radio industry in Memphis, so I've got some contacts in the city of Memphis. And then uh, just going to school at Ole Miss, I, I know a lot of people, whether that be assistant coaches, uh, people that cover football in and around the state of Mississippi, and then being a part of the Rivals Network now has really uh, broadened my, my you know, proverbial Rolodex where I have access to some of their uh, best analysts, you know, guys like Chad Simmons, uh, Mike Farrell, Woody Womack, um, you know, Sam Spiegelman covers Texas and Louisiana. I mean, a lot of these guys, they're super helpful. Um, I can just kind of reach out to them and say, hey, what are you hearing about this guy? Um, you know, are there any... Uh, under the radar guys that Ole Miss has offered in your area that I should, you know, keep an eye on. So um, the the library of, you know, the different sources of information that I have now at my disposal with being a part of Rivals is, is pretty great. And then if all else fails, um, I've got some some personal sources, you know, whether that be people that live in Oxford and, and, and know the right people, if you will. Um, I can always reach out to them. But, yeah, I mean, it's just kind of a um, – a lot of people have a a really you know hardcore plan or, or, or plan of action, if you will, of how they do things. For me, um, you know, it's just kind of a, a laid back approach. I'm, I'm not gonna, you know, recruiting is such a people use the word fluid a lot. You know, things are fluid, and I mean, these are at the end of the day, these are teenagers, and uh, especially now, you know, trying to reach out to them to get some quotes, get some some thoughts on on visits, you know, how they're feeling about Ole Miss, the new staff, you know. We are, as we talk right now, we are a day away from early signing period. I mean, these, these guys are tired of it. The, the process is grueling. They don't want to talk to reporters. They don't want to talk about, you know, how their visit went. They're, they're over it. If they're signing tomorrow, they're they're just ready to get it over with and, and to move on to the next the next level and next stage in their life. So it's it's hard. It's you know, people use the phrase like pulling teeth. I mean, it's it's hard to get some some quotes out of kids, and I don't blame them. I I never went through the process, but I'm sure that having to answer questions constantly about where you're going to go to school and and what coaching staff you like the best and what campus was was the the prettiest and and all of that. I mean, I'm sure that's got to just be. Uh, it, it really takes a toll on you. Absolutely. So, obviously, you mentioned early signing day. That is why we're here. That's what we're here to discuss. Ole Miss currently, I believe, 17 commits and then the Rodgers transfer from ULL. Is that I have that correct, don't I? Um, yes, Chase Rodgers. Yeah, yeah. So, they got 17 and then him coming in from ULL. It, from, it's always interesting to me, and I, I've, it was interesting kind of talking to coaches and, how they, and, uh, and some of the guys on the recruiting staff and how they adapt to this early signing period. And then Ole Miss kind of had the the most interesting part to me is where you had a staff change. 
how did that kind of affect things? Because I saw a couple kids obviously decommitted, then recommitted, or at least one I know of. They got a quarterback commit in Cade Renfro yesterday. Just, like, I guess, take me prior to Egbo week to now, how has that changed since Lane has gotten in here? So I did reach out to quite a bit of the, you know, current commitments, targets, whether that be for, for this signing class. I reached out to some 2021s. Uh, some of them were were pretty adamant about the hire. They were they were they were very excited. They were, you know, hey, I don't know much about Lane Kiffin. I, I want to get to know him. I want to learn more about him. Some knew him from his time at Alabama. You know, one particular recruit, for instance, Isaiah Jacobs, a, uh, a running back out of Owasso, Oklahoma. He is the younger brother of Josh Jacobs. So, as you might imagine, he is very familiar with Lane Kiffin. Um, he coached his brother at Alabama, so he is he is one that uh, he won't be signing until February, but uh, Ole Miss is very much on his radar because of the Lane Kiffin hire. But it, how it changed things, a lot of recruiting is relationships and how close you can get to a, a staff member or a staff as a whole. Um, I do think the landscape of recruiting is shifting a little bit where kids are are, are looking more towards the school, and they are committing to a school. Um, I, up until up until recently, I thought it was a lot of you, you got close to your position coach, um, you got to know the head coach and, and, and how his program operated. Um, you know, the the family atmosphere thing is thrown around a lot, but I think that there's some some truth to that. I think kids like to feel like they're at home. They like to feel a family atmosphere. They're they're away from their family, and, and I mean, let's be honest, the, the college football player, it's, it's essentially a job. It's all day, every day. You're going to practice. You're going to watch film. You're getting treatment. You're lifting weights. You have class thrown in there, but, I mean, it, it's all day, every day. So that's something that I think prospects really gravitate towards is a family atmosphere, and, and Ole Miss has always seemed to have that for whatever reason, but with this new staff, it was a – a little bit of a curveball so close to the early signing period, but I think that they have weathered the storm. I really don't think they're going to lose too many prospects. Um, and, and when I say lose, I mean commit elsewhere. There are quite a few that are considering waiting until February just to, you know, it was a it was a really quick turnaround to be able to uh, not only get to know the new staff, but to, you know, get to Oxford for an official visit. Some of them, some of that's not a bad thing for the staff, though, right? Getting those kids to delay until February, like in part, that's kind of some of no, their not goal, at right? all. Yeah, right, right. And, and and Kiffin still wants to. Um, I, I think they're going to look at resetting their board, so to speak. You know, they're going to change. You know how they recruit. I think that once this early signing period is over with, the dead period is, is going on as we speak, and uh, once January hits. Once the dead period's over, I think he is not only going to go just, you know, zero to 100 on getting his staff completed, but also really hitting the recruiting trail and, and talking to some new targets, really getting after their brand of players, so to speak. So um, as far as the new staff and how it affected things, I mean, I think just the, the one, you know, the week and a half that they had to – build some relationships, assure some players, you know, hey, your offer is still 
still committable with us. Like you're still good to join this class. We like you as a as a prospect. Blah blah blah. They did a really good job of hitting. I mean, Kiffin basically landed in Oxford, did his his press conference. You know, spoke to the fans at the pavilion, and then it was immediately hitting the road. I mean, he was out. He was already flying, going to Arkansas to see Robert Scott, going to Baton Rouge to see DeSanto Rollins. He went to um, DeSoto County to see Jakeebian Brown, Josiah Hayes. Um, he, he, he's back to Oxford. He's talked to J.J. Fagese. Um, you know, he's, he's been out and about. He's been very busy, and he's done all of that with kind of a makeshift staff. Um, I think it, the picture is going to become a little more clear once he uh, – gets, quote, his guys on his staff. Um, I, I think there's still a lot of things in flux when it comes to uh, who's going to stay on staff with him in Oxford and, and who's not. Including Black Monday in the NFL, it sounds like, as well. Like, as far as that being yeah, in flux. That's, right. That's going to be something to really watch because there's a couple names that our sources have told us to keep an eye on, and two of them are, are NFL coaches. Um, and they're very familiar names. Bo Davis, who is uh, at Alabama as a defensive line coach. He's with the Detroit Lions. And then Tosh Lupo, who was at Alabama as well, he is with the Cleveland Browns. I know that we've been told that Kiffin wants to interview both. And I think out of just, you know, I, I guess that NFL corporate mindset and just kind of out of respect for their players and, and their and their organizations, they're going to wait until their regular season is over before they uh, – make any moves but yeah NFL assistants are going to be moving around a lot yeah no it's interesting and both of those dudes are on staffs that are probably not going to see past Black Monday like Matt Patricia seems gone if Freddie Kitchens is not gone I don't really know what the hell they're doing anymore so that's kind of makes it even (laughs) more fascinating that they're both on basically lame duck staffs that it's just a matter of when it seems like as far as you mentioned him kind of hitting the ground running and you mentioned Rollins, and then you mentioned going up to Conway, Arkansas, and a couple of the other places they went. In your estimation, like, I mean, they got 17 currently committed. You mentioned Josiah Hayes. Like, how many kids do you think he saw in that week and a half? Because I, I, I don't have an exact number. You may, may not, but, like, just best guess. Oh. Um, well, I know in Baton Rouge they, they did go around and, and see quite a few Ole Miss recruits Louisiana pretty heavily. Uh, somebody like Major Burns, he's a defensive back out of Baton Rouge. He decommitted from from LSU. I'm, a, I'm, I'm fairly certain they went to went by to see him and, and introduce themselves as the new staff. He will not be signing early, to my knowledge. So they've got some time if they want to pursue him. And there's quite a few other players in Louisiana. I mean, Darren Branch is a guy that's committed to Ole Miss right now. I think he's up in the air whether or not he's going to sign early or not. But um, I would say probably in the ballpark of anywhere from ten to fifteen. You mentioned just, you mentioned Josiah Hayes. That was an interesting one to me because it seemed like from obviously from a guy that's not in the recruiting arena, you know, on a daily basis, it seemed like Ole Miss was in pretty good position for him. Then you had the coaching change, and I had a couple people I know kind of around Kentucky thinking that John Sumrall, because I believe there's a connection there, uh, felt like they maybe had a yeah. decent chance with him uh, once kind of Luke was, was fired. And then, of course, how has that changed since you brought in Kiffin? I'm not going to ask that again. But, like, 
what, where do you think he sits right now? Do you still think Ole Miss is kind of a fairly heavy lean? I think so. I think Kiffin and his staff, Freddie Roach is still a part of it right now. I think they really weathered the storm. Uh, Charles Clark, the, the cornerback's coach at Ole Miss, he's still currently on the staff. He recruits DeSoto County in Memphis. I think that that, was, uh, that that played a role in kind of weathering the storm with him and, I guess, reassuring him not only that he had a spot, but you know, Ole Miss was the place for him. There was some very, very heavy interest with Kentucky. He took a visit there, seemed to really like it. Yeah, Sumrall is, is recruiting him heavily, uh, the former Ole Miss linebackers coach. He's a great recruiter. Um, there was some buzz that he was going to go to Kentucky, and uh, I think Ole Miss has, has settled that down, and uh, I expect him to sign with Ole Miss uh, with his teammate, Kevin Brown, on Wednesday. As far as the quarterback, Ole Miss gets a quarterback commit from Cade Renfro yesterday, Stephenville, Texas. Am I mistaking in that's the general area Jevin Sneed was from? That's correct. That is his alma mater. That's what I thought. Okay, so that's interesting. Um, That aside, that was just some random factoid that popped into my brain. What I was going to ask was... How have you seen kind of the way, obviously, Robbie Ashford was the big D commitment that kind of got, you know, the message boards all riled up and people kind of being like, okay, what's up here? How much of that do you think was affected by the almost inexplicable fact that Ole Miss is going into the spring with essentially the same quarterback room it had last year? Because, like, if you'd have told me that three weeks ago, I would have said you were nuts. But that generally seems that it has a fairly good chance of happening um, at the moment, or I guess it, it is going to happen, at least kind of with the big three. How much do you think that changed, I guess, things specifically with Ashford or just kind of how they view the quarterbacks in this class and what they want to do? I think it was more of the staff and the plan that they have for the quarterbacks they want to recruit. I don't think it was necessarily Ashford was, you know, whether it was afraid of competition or a numbers game. I mean, in recruiting, I mean, these kids all think that they're better than everybody else. Right. That's not, you know, any kind of – That's that, it's not to be – they're not snobby about it. I mean, it's just it, it's just a thing where – It's just an athlete's mindset. Right, yeah. I mean, they, they think that they can win a spot. They think that they can beat out the next guy. And that's good. That's a, that's a, that's a great mindset to have. You don't want somebody that's coming in and they're timid and they're, you know, afraid of competition. But I think it was more of a philosophy thing. I think Ash – Ashford was a perfect fit for a Rich Rodriguez offense. Right. And I think Kiffin and new offensive coordinator Jeff Levy are going to really gravitate towards not really a pro style, but just, you know, more of a pocket passer first mentality. Um, They're going to want some mobility. Don't get me wrong, but that's kind of what I thought it was. And then there was some rumblings that maybe Lane Kiffin wasn't too happy with um, the possibility of him playing baseball. I don't really know if there's any truth to that. Um, I do think there is some concern with Ashford um, and the in the Major League Baseball draft. I mean, he's still kind of in flux there as a prospect. He is a big-bodied, fast outfielder who has a really plus swing at the plate. And I know this is a recruiting podcast, but um, just a brief aside here for MLB Draft Talk. But he is he is a prospect that could really move up a board if he has a uh, good spring. Um, and that's something else that, that 
could have factored in is that you know he's going to play baseball at Hoover High School, and I think that there's a possibility that Kiffin and Levy wanted a quarterback to sign early and enroll early so they could get him in the system and get him acclimated. So um, I would say it was probably a pretty, you know, I don't know if it, I could say it was a uh, a clean break, but um, I think it was a philosophy. Yeah. No, that that certainly makes a ton of sense. You mentioned them going to Conway earlier to talk to Robert Scott. Obviously, you've got Eli Acker, the kid out of Columbus, who basically pulled the A.J. Brown and kind of went with the I'm not going anywhere, Wolf of Wall Street. I always enjoy that clip. I, I believe those are the only – no, they've got three uh, offensive linemen committed in this class, correct, if I'm not mistaken. That's obviously going yeah. to be a huge area of concern with this team going forward. While Jack Bicknell, I thought, did a pretty good job uh, with this offensive line this year after what was a just a disastrous Memphis game. They've got three right now. Are they going? Do you see them being in on anyone else? How many linemen generally do you think they might try to sign in this class? I know that's kind of a thing that's also very much fluid and in flux. But is there any other kind of offensive lineman prospects that that you should keep an eye on, whether it's tomorrow or February? So as far as tomorrow goes, um, and you mentioned the, the three offensive linemen, you mentioned Acker and Scott. The other one is Luke Schaus. He's from Brentwood, Tennessee. Um, all three of them are really long, athletic guys. Schaus is six six. Scott six six. Acker six six. Um, I, I do think it was telling of what Kiffin and his staff thinks of Robert Scott going there. Uh, flying to Conway because Sam Pittman, the new head coach at Arkansas, has made Robert Scott a priority. And uh, I don't think the previous staff, I don't think Chad Morris's staff did that. And uh, Sam Pittman, all jokes aside with the with the yes sir meme and <laughs> and just how cartoonish he is. He's he is a, a good a, recruiter. He's a good recruiter. He can evaluate offensive linemen. He's put a ton of guys in the league. So – that's and Scott's going to wait until February to sign. So Ole Miss is going to have a battle there, keeping him in their commitment list. But as far as guys to keep an eye on on Wednesday, uh, the two that you need to know uh, are going to be Tobias Braun. Um, he's a big, big, big guy from Connecticut. Uh, he goes to the Salisbury School. It's a, a college prep school. He's originally from Germany and uh, moved to the states. Played high school football in Texas initially and then moved to Connecticut to this prep school. Uh, 6'7", 300-pounder. Uh, his offer sheet is incredibly impressive. Um, got offers from uh, Power 5 schools like Oregon, Oklahoma State, Michigan, uh, Arkansas, Arizona State. Um, but the battle, was, the battle seems to be between Ole Miss and Florida State. Uh, and... Ole Miss might have the upper hand here because Florida State was recruiting him with Randy Clements, who, as you know, is now the offensive line coach at Ole Miss. Maybe that tip, tips things in Ole Miss's favor. I'm not sure. You never know with, uh, with recruiting, but I would say that Ole Miss has the upper hand slightly right now um, in signing him. The other one, and this is a big one, Chris Morris, the offensive guard out of uh, – he currently goes to, to high school at West Memphis in Arkansas, but he's originally from Memphis. There was a uh, there was a whole whole thing with that. He went to a uh, a charter school in Memphis, wanted to transfer because that football program was shutting down. TWSAA wouldn't let him transfer to a school in the same 
county without having to sit out a year. So obviously wants to play as a senior, wants to get film out there to be recruited. So he goes to West Memphis to play for uh, the Blue Devils there. But committed to Texas A&M, he is a top 50 player uh, per rivals. And this is what's crazy, Brian. In January, he put out a top 12, and Ole Miss wasn't even in it. And huh. within Lane Kiffin being hired in within a week, they have him on campus officially visiting. And right now it is Ole Miss and Texas A&M. I mean, Lane Kiffin is going toe-to-toe with Jimbo Fisher and the Aggies right now to try to flip him on signing day. And from some things that I was hearing on Monday evening, um, there was a lot of positive smoke in terms of Chris Morris flipping to Ole Miss. So, Big name there, uh, like I said, top 50 player, four-star, um, very, very, very good player, has some great feet. Um, it, not near the level of player that he was coming out of high school, but honestly the feet and the quickness gives me some little bit of Laramie Tunsil vibes, and I know that that's probably going to be getting me roasted saying that, um, but – to be clear, not saying he's going to be Laramie Tunsil, but just a very athletic, agile, quick guy who can uh, can really uh, get to the second level and uh, make things happen. But those are the two offensive line names to know. Okay, Laramie Tunsil 2.0. Um, <laughs> exactly. <Yeah. laughs> so I, I like what you did there when I asked about the offensive line. You were talking about as far as, as Wednesday. Give me – I'm not going to put a number on it. Give me a couple of guys – to look for that would kind of tip the scales as far as whether it's average to good, good to great, whatever day for Ole Miss tomorrow? Are there just a three or four guys you're kind of keeping an eye on that could kind of really swing the, the momentum pendulum one way or another? Right. Well, Morris is the obvious one, Okay, being such a highly rated player. I haven't talked about him yet, but um, I really like Alante Brown. He is a uh, prep school player. He's originally from Chicago, went to Simeon High School, uh, played quarterback there, um, originally signed with Texas Tech, and then went to prep school. Now it's it seems to be down to Ole Miss and Nebraska. Um, he, If you want a visual, if you want something to really go off, he, get, he reminds me a ton of Elijah Moore. Uh, just a super, super athlete, dynamic in space, can uh, – really make you pay, home run speed, so could really be a factor in the return game, playing a you know, slot receiver, running back out of the backfield. If you if you watch Jeff Levy's offense at UCF, they, they do a lot of things with guys out of the backfield, guys in the slot. I think he would be dynamic. He's not a super highly rated prospect, but I think that um, they zeroed in on him instantly when, when Lane Kiffin and his staff got to Oxford. They have a previous relationship. They recruited him when they were at FAU. Um, so he's familiar with Kiffin. He's familiar with uh, what he does offensively. That's one to keep an eye on. And then the obvious one is is J.J. Pegues, the, the Oxford high school athlete. I think he's going to sign with Auburn um, as of right now. So. That had kind of been the feel all along, right? Well, it was always 50-50. It was, it was, it was always a two-team race. I fought Ole Miss with, with Matt Luke and, and that staff. They had a real shot to get him in, in the end. And Big East, you know, to his credit, was very honest 
And when Ole Miss made a change, he said that, you know, hey, I, I think it's a little a little too late for me to uh, to meet a new staff and to get to know a new coach and all that. So I, I think he's going to sign with Auburn. Ole Miss has, has by no means given up. They're going to recruit him until the end. Um, but I think he's going to end up with Auburn. But if he were to somehow end up in this class, that would just be a humongous coup for, for this staff. And um, But that's pretty much it. I mean, outside of those names, one more to keep an eye on would be uh, Derek Bermudez. Uh, he's a safety out of, out of Florida. He goes to Sandalwood High School. Originally committed to Florida State, obviously decommitted when the uh, staff change happened there. Um, he officially visited Pittsburgh, officially visited Georgia Tech, and then was in Oxford last weekend. Um, I know that Lane Kiffin reached out to him almost immediately when he was hired to ask if he was still interested in Ole Miss, and he obviously said yes, so he visited. As of right now, I don't really have a feel for what he's going to do, but in recruiting, you know, whoever gets the last visit, that's crucial at times. So, um, but he is a long athletic safety that I know that they would love to get in this in this class. The uh, secondary struggles were real for Ole Miss in 2019, and and that'll be something that uh, Kiffin and his staff are going to look to uh, address immediately to get athletes back there on the third level. But Bermudez is a uh, is a good prospect in my in my eyes. Only rated as a three star, but I think the size speed ratio that that Tyler Siski uh, has been recruiting. Uh, in the Shark Tank to uh, to Ole Miss, I think that that's going to be a name to watch. So that would be one that I think would would be able to push this class from from uh, you know a, a pretty good transition class to a a borderline great transition class. Last thing before I let you go, this probably be a little bit easier answer question to answer in February when the class is complete. But like of the seventeen eighteen guys they have kind of in the bag right now. Obviously, things could change. Is there one that kind of sticks out as maybe the most ready player? I mean, last year, was a little, obviously, you heard Sam Williams a lot. That's you know, fairly common with the Juco kids. Is there any one kid that they have right now that sticks out in your mind that might be kind of a plug-and-play kid? Uh, right now, so I'll, I'll, do you, I'll do you one better. I'll give you who is in this, in the, on the commitment list right now. I'll give you who I think is, is ready right now, and then uh, I'll give you a couple that I think that they could potentially add that are ready. I think right now, honestly, the most ready-made might be Demarcus Thomas, the tight end out of Saryland, Alabama, 6'3", close to 230 pounds. We've seen what, what Lane Kiffin has done with tight ends and his offense, you know, O.J. Howard at, at Alabama, and then what he did with, with Harrison Bryant this year at FAU. Um, uh, he really likes to get the tight ends involved. Marcus Thomas is a, uh, a really good athlete. He's kind of in that Evan Ingram mold, a receiver that's you know big body, playing that H-back tight end role. I also really like Jakevian Brown, the kid from Warren Lake, outside linebacker, looks to be every bit of 230, 235 pounds. This season was his first season playing outside linebacker at Warren Lake. He was for the most part, a, a tight end receiver for them, and uh, they moved him over to defense when they lost a uh, big senior class after they won the state title in 2018. <clears throat> Excuse me. But uh, I think that he's going to surprise some people. Um, really good athlete. He uh, In his first year, like I said, really opened some eyes, and um, that was 
I think the first recruit that that Lane Kiffin went to see. I think that that speaks volumes. In terms of guys that aren't in the commitment column right now, I think the obvious one is McKinley Jackson, the four-star defensive tackle out of Lucidale from George County High School. He is a immediate plug-and-play. He is a replace Benito Jones type guy. He would, I think, he would play <clears throat> day one. Won the MVP at the Mississippi Alabama All Star Game. He just completely dominated in one on one drills all week in practice, and then dominated in the game. He had six tackles and two sacks in that game. He would be a guy that would play day one. Um, and then if Ole Miss can can get him to sign in February, he, <clears throat> in my opinion, would play alongside Josiah Hayes. He's another guy that I think could uh, could really crack the two deep in 2020 for Ole Miss um, at a Horn Lake. Big physical guy, um, uh, low to the ground. You know, not a huge defensive lineman, but I think that he is talented enough to to really uh, make a difference in the depth chart and uh, push to play as a true freshman. Awesome! I really appreciate it, dude. Oh, two last things after we one. I have this idea. If I made a like, so I remember when I was in journalism school. All of like the stuffy big J's that taught us classes carried around their AP style book as if it was some kind of like badge of honor or a Bible. Could you make one of those four recruits and like what the different emojis and type that type shit mean? Like would that be would that sell? <laughs> uh I don't know if it would sell and I don't know if I would be able to do that. I think the Oh, I'm the thinking landscape. about doing it. I'm trying to profit here. <laughs> the landscape of uh, college football recruiting uh, Twitter game changes. Uh, I, I'm not, you know, I, I cover it, but I don't <laughs> pretend to even come remotely close to knowing what these kids are saying at the time. I, I have to, uh, I have to try to figure it out and Google it, just like everybody else. I mean, I, don't, I don't know what these emojis mean half the time, and I'm, I'm pushing 32 years old here, so I'm, I'm not young by any means. So, I hear you. Well, I uh, also heard you're a noted NFL fan. I hope that doesn't affect the job you're able to do covering recruiting. <laughs> um, but, Zach, I appreciate your time. Uh, this was great stuff. I definitely learned a lot. I really appreciate it. Uh, hopefully, maybe we can have you back on in February, but I really enjoyed this. Thank you, man. Yeah, Brian, no problem. Remember, don't tweet recruit. Absolutely. Have a good one. That interview with Zach was brought to you by LB's. LB's best place in Oxford to go get meat. We really appreciate Greg the Man's partnership. Greg the Meat Sharp. Uh, he's been killing it on the gambling picks. We'll have him back this week. Uh, best place in Oxford to get meat. University Avenue across from Kroger. Uh, he's got the uh, all kinds of specials going on. Lane Kiffin, 6-ounce bacon-wrapped filet special. Keith Carter special, $15. 8-ounce bacon-wrapped filet. I don't know how Carter got the bigger ounce there. We'll, uh, we'll have to pick Greg's brain about that. Don't know what's up there. But anyway, we'll go see Greg, University Avenue across from Kroger. They've got plate lunches, daily specials, all kinds of different stuff. Greg's got it going on over there right now. So go see LB's University Avenue, best place in Mississippi to get meat. And that was Zach Berry. I really appreciate his time. Uh, it was a really, really fascinating interview. Uh, I, he does really good work over there. Uh, we talked about his affinity for the NFL and that how that affects his job as a recruiting analyst. Um, all kinds of stuff. So I, uh, I, I really appreciate his time. Uh, as you kind of, we hit on it before we played the interview, but really the main takeaway is there. Really, kind of a shift in how they're going to recruit quarterbacks. Uh, you kind of heard the three guys he had on his mind as far as guys that you, to keep on your radar to, to really kind of shift this class from uh, 
I guess, good to – I say shift the class. For, shift tomorrow kind of from average to good, good to great. Um, I found a lot of interesting. And then he told me – he told me at the beginning he got into recruiting because he, when he was, uh, I think he was in college at the time. I don't want to date him, but I'm pretty sure he said that. Uh, the Joe McKnight recruitment where he ended up going to USC in the Orgeron area, he said that kind of got him hooked on the recruiting battles. Uh, more power to him. I don't really have the recruiting bug in terms of following. Obviously, if it were my job, I'd probably have it a little bit different. But I just sort of struggle with 18-year-old kids like to kind of follow along all the, all the twists and turns that go into recruiting. Like I could see all that all of that is fascinating, but like to me it's just too hard to follow. Maybe I'm just too ADD. No, it's it's hard. And especially and I understand why they do it cuz it's their job, but you have these recruiting analysts that call big news a kid releasing his top 12. It's like they, you can only take five official visits. Like that's not news. I can't follow that. That that's where you lose me. Is when that becomes breaking news, like a top 12 or stuff like that. And as you said, I mean, it, God knows when I was 16 and 17 years old, I would not have been able to uh, answer questions from 10 different middle-aged media guys about where I was going to go to college. Man, I, like, I didn't know what I was going to do the next day, let alone what I was going to do for the next four years of my life. Like, I kind of just made the decision to go to college not on a whim, but it's just I couldn't follow recruiting like that. I mean, it's a bunch of bunch of kids and having to try to talk to them all the time and you know get quotes for interviews and predict where they're going to go to school. I just kudos to people that can do it. I, I don't have the patience for that. Me neither. Zach's good at it though; does a really good job with it. Again, he's like, got better patience than we do. That's what that comes down to. Yep. Also, better connections, and just has the like. I, the one of the things you heard me ask him at the beginning of this thing, and not to repeat the entire interview, but what I was always fascinated by with the recruiting guys and how they cover it is actually how they get a pool of guys like on their radar as far as like who the schools are interested in at first he was kind of confused by the question because he was like i mean i'm not on staff i don't know and i was like no like how do you get a radar of like who schools are actually serious about taking or not because it seems like so many offers are flown out there and so many are non-committable and all that type of stuff like to me there's so many different names and so many different guys that part could get overwhelming that's the part that seems hard to me is there's so many different dudes how do you actually know what's real and what's not yeah, I, I couldn't do it. I really couldn't. I'm just I'm glad we do it the way we do. Where when signing day comes, we'll tell you who they got and what it means, and then we'll we'll move right along. One of the things he he was I found interesting is, and this may be kind of shed light into a little bit of a problem with kind of the way Arkansas, uh, I, I guess the way things ended for them. But he mentioned as I, and I kind of teased it before uh, we we played the interview is that he talked about Kiffin going to Conway, Arkansas um, to kind of... Oh, short- you know, control the uh, the Wampus cast there at Conway High School, right? Isn't that what he was doing? Yeah. I mean, I mean he just showed that how much he cares about the, uh, the rivalry with, uh, not against, but the rivalry with uh, Arkansas by tweeting a picture of the airport there. You know, just really exemplifying how important uh, feeding the Central Arkansas Bears with the alternating purple and silver turf uh, is to success at Ole Miss. And that's, that's absolutely what he was doing. You can't tell me otherwise. He goes to see Ole Miss commit Robert Scott, 
And I, I found this interesting as he was talking about the reason. One of the reasons he did that is because when Arkansas hired Sam Pittman, they were got on the trail or whatever. And apparently, like Ole Miss committed, got him committed. He wasn't really a priority to, with Morris at all. But apparently, has become a huge one with Sam Pittman, and that shows you, like, I guess just how differently these programs view some of these kids. I found that part of it fascinating because, like, like I, you talk about these, like, I feel like the classic recruiting thing. It's like saying these kids don't commit to anything and they're bipolar and all that. But one of the things you don't think about is stuff like that. Coaching staff changes where you become a priority for a school in your home state when you weren't, say, I don't know, 48 hours earlier when they had the other guy. Like to, so, I'm just saying, like when you talk about like you like when kids decommit and stuff like that, they're like, oh, these kids like com- commitments don't mean anything like that. Well, I don't ever think about it from the perspective of like. Oh, this kid maybe wants to go here, but wasn't a priority. That school has a coaching change, and now he is like that, like that type of thing. You don't ever seem to look at it from the other side when the like the kid being a priority and where he ranks on the priority list changes from the school's perspective and the coaching staff's perspective. Well, yeah, and also the people that that whine and complain about oh, the kids don't know anything about commitment anymore. Uh, when they were seventeen, they definitely never change what they wanted to do in life. They definitely never uh, had to choose between two colleges, or they definitely uh, started dating a girl when they were 16 and uh, married her right away. They, they definitely didn't go through any breakups or have any change of heart, didn't change of job. No, they, they didn't do any of that. It's up to the modern 17-year-old kid uh, to make a decision and stick with that because we all did that exact same thing at that age without wavering whatsoever. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I've never changed anything at 18. Uh, I thought yeah, Me neither. I, I never changed anything at all. Like, I, I didn't have multiple jobs uh, when I was 16 to 18 because none of them would be flexible with football. I didn't change my college choice three or four times. Nope, not at all. Uh, not, not one bit. Uh, so, yeah, I just stuck with everything I decided when I was a, a child, and, and I'm still, to this day, working at the Zaxby's I worked at when I was 16 and went to Coastal Carolina to go to professional golf management school. Like that, That's exactly what I stayed with because I honor commitment or whatever. One of the names that, he, uh, that Zach pointed out that would kind of uh, maybe swing the day a little bit for Ole Miss is McKinley Jackson, George County defensive tackle, Loosedale, Mississippi. Uh, he said he, he described him as a plug and play, like a plug, like replace Benito Jones type of guy, ready to play from day one. Four star guy. I think what, he's 113th nationally, 12th at his position. It would be the highest rated commit Ole Miss has so far if they were able to get into more LSU's in on him, Alabama's in on him some. Uh, Ole Miss does lose a lot on the defensive line, and they've got a couple of guys committed, but I feel like maybe that, without with everything else, maybe the defensive line has kind of gotten lost a bunch because you do lose a couple of good players in, you know, whether you want to go interior or exterior, but Josiah Cotney, Kadir Shepard, and most notably Benito Jones, that's a lot to replace. Yeah, that's why I think they're going to enter and look at the transfer portal pretty hard, but uh, what kind of chances did he say that they uh, they potentially had. Searing good. He said he, was, he thought there was some momentum there. Uh, I'm about, let's see, yeah, I got Chris, Crystal Ball 247 uh, pulled up, and it's like 33% Ole Miss, 33% LSU, 16% Alabama. So, 
I guess about as good as any. It seems. And it is he signing? Uh, yes, he gave that. Signing that tomorrow? Yes, or at least gave that. Dak gave that impression that he was signing tomorrow. Anyway, uh, any final big picture thoughts on recruiting? I'll be interested to see kind of where they stand after tomorrow and kind of what they need to shore up in the uh, late part. Because one of the interesting things about this early signing period is it gives. Maybe in some ways it benefits new coaching staffs as much as it kind of sucks to to be rushed and hit the ground running and Kiffin being in you know X many amount of homes in a week and a half trying to basically just save the class. They do have a kind of a halftime here where they can kind of take a break, take a couple of breaths, figure out some staff stuff, and then figure out you know when recruiting cranks back up in January where they need to finish and what needs they need to meet, rather than it all just happening at once. Yeah, I hear you. I mean, looking forward to it a little bit, just because um, if if there can be any fireworks at all tomorrow from Lane Kiffin in a transition class when he's only had two weeks to put it together, uh, pretty good sign that moving forward, as long as he stays at Ole Miss, they'll be in the mix for multiple major prospects, like top 15 classes, that kind of thing. Yeah, and the uh, the... As they round out, I think that you'll kind of get more clarity on that as well as they kind of round out the staff, which will be, as I mentioned with Zach, and we talked about this yesterday, some will be affected, some by Black Monday in the NFL. Maybe kind of fairly directly, that's probably one of the reasons why it's still kind of a fluid thing. You know, whether it's Bo Davis, uh, Tosh Lupoy, is that, I always say say their names wrong. Two, two guys, uh, Detroit Lions, Cleveland Browns, on lame duck coaching staffs that are expected to get fired do they join Kiffin staff? Do they go elsewhere? Uh, but obviously, those are guys that will be dynamic recruiters. And even if it's not them, uh, I mean, the connections that he's got—that's the thing. If their staff's just not even full, uh, I mean, even if it's not either one of those two guys, I mean, uh, you'd imagine a guy, a guy with Kiffin's connections will be able to put together a pretty good, pretty good backup plan in those spots. I know they've got some guys that are. Uh, on that Luke staff that are still working because as long as you're drawing a paycheck from the school, you know you got to keep working for it. But it, if it's not one of those two guys, it's not like the uh, ability to hire a strong recruiter is not there. And of course, that's not what you were suggesting. But um, if anybody's thinking that they, if they don't get Bo Davis, that well, shit, you know we're uh, we're never going to have a defensive line coach that can recruit that well. Yes, you will. They're out there. It's just. Um, there's a couple of SEC schools that apparently are going to be pursuing him. It's just whether or not he uh, wants to work for Lane. So, I don't know. It feels like Lane, if he can kind of get, whether it's uh, you know McKinley Jackson, whether it's Christian uh, Chris Morris, which is the one that, if you'll, obviously you just listened to the interview, I uh, was talking about, was on eight, really wasn't on Ole Miss's radar at all, was, didn't even have him in their top 12, and Kiffin's really made waves in a week and a half with him. West Memphis kid that is committed to Texas A&M. Um, it, you know, another four-star kid. If he can kind of get one of those two stones turning in his direction and rolling in his direction, you know, that will. It feels like he needs just maybe not needs. If he gets one or two of those tomorrow, it's just going to continue this wave of momentum that really just kind of his mere presence has brought over the last two weeks. For sure. Um, so we'll see what happens. Anyway, so I don't know what else happened this weekend. You had some football. The Presidents' Cup was pretty wild. Uh, Patrick Reed's caddy shoved a fan. Um, I don't even really know where to start. I thought it was a weird weekend in the NFL. Dallas looked like they could beat uh, a good team 
at home if everything's clicking the right way. Like if I'm San Francisco and I like I, I'm not sure how much tape they're watching from that game, but just seeing the result of that, I'm thinking shit. Like I don't want to go there. Yeah, and I, I mean I was telling you guys all summer about Tony Pollard. I mean I knew that kid could play, and, and he had what 130 yards on something like 10 or 11 carries. I mean just completely went off against the Rams defense. But suddenly the whole Sean McVay shook my hand once, therefore give me a job. <laughs> uh, whatever you want to call that is uh, non-existent anymore. They've come way back down to earth. I don't know what the problem is there because, I mean, yeah, they've dealt with a few injuries, but it's almost like the league has figured them out. That may be oversimplifying it, but what a dramatic change. I know. I went with uh, I went with the Rams and the LBs pick them, too. I went with the Titans as well. The Titans is kind of, as I, we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, kind of just got, uh, really just got Texaned by the Texans. They kind of threw a stinker when they had really been the hottest team in the NFL. It was That was an interesting game. I'll have the results of the LB's Pick'em on Thursday as we get into another one. We're going to have bowls this weekend, so this week's LB's Pick'em will have uh, some bowl uh, some bowl picks, and it is officially bowl season now. You kind of get that one throwaway weekend after Army-Navy. We get a triple header this weekend in NFL games on Saturday, which is kind of nice. Uh, a couple of them are really good, but I don't know. Any, what were your general thoughts on the NFL yesterday? Like anything stand out? Or I say yesterday, Sunday. Oh, well, yesterday a lot of things stood out. Um, you know, just another two records for, for Breeze. How about the Bears' uh Fumble Ruski, Hail Mary at the end of the game that should have worked if the damn fullback just pitches the ball one more time. I know. He to be the hero instead of pitching it to two guys that had clear pass to the end zone and they came up short. I picked the Bears, by the way. They were four and a half point dogs. That would have at least covered, but instead, uh, fullback wanted to be a hero. I know. I have trouble, like, blaming the guy. Because how many times does that guy really have the ball in his hand? One. And two, all of his intention was kind of sucked inside as those guys coming after him. But to your point, if he looks to his right and actually pitches to the guy, uh, you you might have a okay. touchdown there. But like to me, when I watched the replay on that, it seemed like he just didn't see him more so than anything else. I'm not even sure whether that's excusable, inexcusable, whatever. But to me, like I like if he looks at that, he probably tries to throw it. Or at least sooner. I don't think he saw it until too late. Yeah. Other than that, uh, the snow game in Kansas City was pretty cool. That was, and Drew Locke did not handle that well. No. I mean, that may have very well been the first time he played the game like that, but still. Um, the Raiders getting booed off the, uh, the field at the Oakland Coliseum for the final time. That was just sad, dude. That game was in the bag, and then Minshew just kind of ripped their heart out. Yep. They were up sixteen to three, thirteen to three, pretty much the entire game. Like literally until the last five minutes. Did you you saw the scene at the end of that one though? Did you? Yeah, it was pretty sad, honestly. That stadium's such a dump. Like, I, 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 the fans don't deserve it because they don't manage that kind of thing. But the city of Oakland absolutely deserves it. Forcing their team, and I know. Well, it's more than just that. I mean, even though uh, Davis is the poorest owner, relatively speaking, in the NFL. Um, if you want to keep a team around, you can't force them to continue to play in a facility like that. I know there are some people that think that uh, local governments should have no involvement in the building and stuff of those stadiums. I think, you know, it's not up to me, whatever. But if you want a team to stay in your city, 
you've never been to the Oakland Coliseum. It's the worst sports facility I've ever been in. Worse than Legion Field. It's, it's just a, it's a shithole. And so no wonder they're losing. Like, I know you're mad because your favorite team's moving on, but, I mean, the city only has themselves to blame for that just complete trash heap of a stadium. Yeah, you, uh, you kind of got some playoff races shaping up. Like, you pretty much got, what, all, well, really four divisions up for grabs, three in the AFC and, well, five. I guess three in the AFC and two in the NFC. And you're going to get the basically the top two teams playing each other in the last couple weeks. You've got what? Vikings Packers this weekend. And that'll pretty much shape that up. Yeah, Pats and Bills. I mean, I guess the Patriots have to lose twice, but And week uh, but the problem with the Pats is week 16 they get the Dolphins at home. Yeah. Which kind of sucks. But, I mean, their offense is still bad lately. I, I mean, it's not going to happen, but I mean, at least it's worth keeping an eye on, I guess. Then you get Dallas at Philly, which pretty much, I don't understand the tiebreakers. We were trying to figure that out on radio yesterday. But the way I understand it is basically kind of whoever, I'm just going, my brain is going to basically consider whoever wins that the division winner. I know tiebreakers maybe go the other way. I don't understand them. Well, Dallas has uh, Washington to end the season. And Philly has um, New York, uh, the Giants. In New York, so you would think that whoever wins that game should be able to win the next week anyway to solidify that. Right, because if they win the next, if, if Philly wins, it puts their uh, divisional record the same. And assuming the chalk holds the next week, then Philly would have the tiebreaker, I think. Well, their records are equal, though. So if Philly wins, they'll have the record advantage. Oh, that's right. That's right. I didn't even think about that. Yes. So right now they are equal. They're both seven and seven. So Philly wins. Obviously, they go to eight, seven, and Dallas seven and eight, and Dallas will miss the playoffs. How do they flex out? I, I saw that they tried to flex out that game for Sunday Night Football, but Fox protected it, and so you still have Kansas City, Chicago, and then as I mentioned, you've got Green Bay, Minnesota as the Monday Night game, and then Week Seventeen, you got Texans, Titans round two, depending on what the Titans do with the Saints next week. Uh, you could have that come down really for the division. Um, it might anyway, depending on the tiebreakers. And then there's one more that I'm missing. Oh, you've got Seattle-San Francisco, uh, which is in all likelihood going to be the Sunday night game to decide the division that next week. So that seems pretty solid. Yeah, and uh, the Saints fan in me needs Seattle to win that game. So how does that work seeding-wise for the Saints? Why do you need Seattle to win? Because San Francisco beat the Saints? San Francisco owns the tiebreaker, and the Saints own the tiebreaker over Seattle. Saints eleven and three. I mean, wouldn't it help though? Like, but if say Los Angeles somehow beats San Francisco next week, would it matter? Uh, I don't believe so. So, as I understand it, um, the easiest path would be just to have Green Bay to lose to Minnesota. Right. To get them in the one or two. And then Seattle beating San Francisco would get them in the one. Minnesota feels like such a better team than Green Bay. Green Bay, if they win that and get through, is going to be the softest two seed. I don't think they're very good. I don't think so either. But they're still 11-3 and have their own So are we crazy or are they just not? 
No, I, I I don't. I think they're a soft two seed, but I it, yeah, that's a that's a weird deal. So interesting couple weeks coming up in the NFL. We got both season starting. Um, uh, Brian Tyree went off on Saturday. Yeah, he did. So I was at a wedding this weekend. I was off work. I did not uh, get to watch much of this game. But I don't know how much you caught of it. Bree and Tyree basically kind of look like the all-SEC score that they needed him to look like, and that obviously helps when the three ball's going in. Yeah, and the thing is, sometimes when you shoot that well from three, I mean, he'll probably never shoot that well from three again, but the difference was they were in rhythm. It's not like he was making improbable, just like deep check type stuff, and it was just his day. Like, they were open looks. Uh, the ball movement was much better uh, on Saturday than it's been in the last few days. The last few games, anyway. And he was taking open shots in rhythm, and that's why his percentage was so high. It wasn't it wasn't forced hero ball. It wasn't stuff that was early in the shot clock. It was after a couple of passes, ball movement, penetration and kick, shots in rhythm. And so, no, he's not going to shoot, what was it, 8 of 11 from 3, maybe ever again. But that high percentage stuff was created by them not relying on him to create by himself early in the shot clock and take an improbable shot. Uh, Schuler looked much more comfortable. He moved uh, the basketball around very well. Looked like a true point guard, finally, uh, for maybe the first time this season. Uh, didn't score a whole lot, but didn't have to because Tyree went off. The ball movement was good. Uh, they didn't really turn the basketball over all that much. Uh, at least it didn't feel like it to me. I know they had double digits still, but it was an efficient game, and I mean they're much better than Middle Tennessee. But when your two guards play the way they did on Saturday, that's how that team is going to go. As everybody's talked about, that's nothing new. And those two guys have struggled to do that really against anybody this season. Uh, I mean, outside of the second half against Penn State, they've just kind of struggled effectively all season long. And uh, Saturday was not that case at all. Yeah, and that's but that's kind of one. I think one, two things are going to happen over the next two weeks is this practice time where they're not playing very much is really going to benefit them as they kind of still acclimate themselves to some of these new pieces, particularly in the front court. And two, the second thing, as you mentioned, they're just going to have to have Schuler and Tyree play like that. Like Schuler scored ten points, but he had nine assists and I think only two turnovers in thirty-five minutes. He's going, to, he's going to have to shoulder a little bit more of the scoring load this year without Terrence Davis, obviously. But, like, that, that'll that play for them. And then, obviously, Tyree going 30, 34 points on uh, – he was 8 of 11 from 3. That's not going to happen every game. What's going to be the difference for Tyree is how he manufactures offense when he's not hitting jump shots. And we talked about this ad nauseum through the last two weeks, it feels like uh, – you know, kind of getting to the rim, setting up that mid-range game and being aggressive instead of settling for jump shots, that's how they're going to have to play for this team to have a, ch- to have a chance. Because they're, they're, I think what you saw through the struggles against when that competition kind of had an uptick is they really can't have that backcourt struggle. They have to have the all-SEC backcourt play like an all-SEC backcourt. There's a more square burden falling on their shoulders because while Puffin and Henson – are falling into big or kind of being called into bigger roles, and they need C to be good down low, particularly as a rim protector and at least somewhat of an offensive threat. And he played all right on Saturday, uh, but like you, you, if you're talking about which one you're going to lean on, they have to lean on those guards more so than those two sophomores in a JUCO transfer. Yeah, and by the way, I don't know if you saw it during the game they put Kiffin on TV. 
I uh, I did see some of this. We were getting ready to go to this wedding, and uh, they had it on the television. I didn't hear much of the interview. The TV was on mute. But uh, how did that go? Hey, he was fine. I, I, I guess what's funny is it almost felt like if you were watching him for the first time, you thought he couldn't have cared less about being there. But anytime Dave Neal was, it seemed like he was wrapping up the interview, Kiffin would keep talking. I mean, that's just kind of his personality. I mean, he's just not this charismatic, just uh, rah-rah type guy that's got all this energy and all this shit. I mean, he's not a guy like Sam Pittman with his stupid catchphrase. I mean, he just sat there and talked to these guys for a while. It was actually pretty good. I mean, I don't know. I I don't know what people are expecting. I know I've got a, a couple of buddies that were like, man, I thought Kiffin was supposed to be like, this dynamic personality. It's like, no, that's not what he is. He's a guy that, like, will sneak in, like, a, a one-liner in, a like, a mundane conversation that, unless you're paying attention, you don't pick up on. Uh, but he was good. It was fine. I mean, it was a bad basketball game, so I needed something to distract him. Yeah, so... That's really about all I got. United States won the president won the president's cup. Uh, big comeback on Sunday. I was about to say Saturday night. It was Sunday over there in the singles matches. Uh, you had some drama with Patrick Reed and his caddy. Uh, I kind of like this. I think it's hilarious. Obviously, people don't. I, I mean, I, I don't think it. You probably shouldn't be like assaulting and shoving fans, but like, it seemed to create an unnecessary amount of drama around that team, and that doesn't mean I'm not allowed to like it. I thought it was hilarious. Man, I, see, I think it's so funny, too. And, like, yeah, it's shitty. But you, you can't, as a caddy, be messing around with fans like that. But at the same time, I mean, golf's kind of stuffy, right? And even though we've got Tiger Woods back, and that helps a lot, golf needs some edge. And I know golf purists out there won't agree with that. But if you want people to continue to pay attention to your sport when Tiger inevitably hangs it up, you need edge. You need something different. Not just stuffy, buttoned-up guys, like, with all due respect, like Jordan Spieth, is a great player, but, my God, he's boring. I mean, he, he's terribly boring. He's awful, as far as an excitement level goes. He's a great player, but, God, he doesn't move the needle. Patrick Reed, Patty, getting into it with fans, makes the casual sports fan interested in golf. Even if they hate the guy, it's fine. He's a villain. But it'll get people talking about you and make you mainstream in the sports world when Tiger leaves that won't happen very often. Like the President's Cup especially because it was going on at what like midnight to 6am or whatever wasn't really getting a whole lot of play but then uh, Patrick Reed does the shovel celebration and then his caddy gets into it with a fan and then suddenly it's like the Washington Sports Center and they're talking about the President's Cup yeah, and but you got to back it up playing well. The problem is, is he he was terrible the first three days. He did get a point on Sunday, which rectified some of it. But when you suck and that's happening, then you're you don't really have any value, right? So I mean, you you have to be good in order for that to work. Kind of like Russell Westbrook, maybe that's a bad example, uh, or even James Harden. It's not partially just because of the way he plays and not how his attitude is, but. I mean, at least Russell Westbrook, for his, you know, he gets into it with fans and stuff, but he can play. He can really play. So it makes it uh, a little bit more enjoyable. But I don't know, man. Like, I felt like the no laying up guys. I mean, just golf media in general, American golf media. Like, when Matt Kuchar 
was the one that sealed the deal. Like, they, they were upset that it was him. I mean, give me a break. I, I don't know why that stuff bothers me so bad, but uh, you're, you're golf media in the United States, and the United States just wins the President's Cup, and you are sad about it online because it was Matt Kuchar who hit the caddy a few months ago. But, but God forbid anybody says anything negative about Tiger Woods who had uh, a very public affair with dozens of women. Like, that's okay. I mean, he had a wife and kids, but let's ignore that. But Matt Kuchar uh, pays an agreed amount to a caddy, and we are sad that he's playing well. Yeah, I think it's more so, though, they just like poking fun at Kuchar because, like, they've had that long-going stick where they're, like, I remember he was in contention at the British Open that year, and they did a whole thing about how this can't happen because you can't have someone chugging maple syrup with Skechers on out of the Claret Jug. But... Like, yeah, golf media is interesting. It's just kind of cha- it's changed over the years. You've lost, like, really a lot of the traveling beat. And the PGA Tour, to their credit, has been open with new media like No Laying Up and Barstool and some of that that has made the game more interesting and kind of saved it, I guess, uh, from kind of the old stuffy, uh, I guess, Big J newspaper type crowd. Because you'd have some of that over the weekend. The Barstool guys got a statement from Reed's caddy, and then you had this big controversy between an ESPN guy and a golf magazine guy and a couple, or golf digest maybe it was, a couple other guys. Uh, that was all entertaining. So, I don't know. Entertaining week down under, all things said and done, I guess. Yeah, I, I mean, if they would have tied, though, that would have been the dumbest possible thing in sports, man. Could you imagine that? Yeah, I guess it would go to the United States. I, I, I'm assuming it works like the Ryder Cup where you just retain the cup. No, they would have split it. See, in the Ryder Cup, though, if you have it, it's just like you, it's, it's, if you have the cup, you kind of have the advantage, unless I'm mistaking. But no, you're right. So you you have to win. Well, of course, you have to win by half a point. But if you tie, you retain the cup. But the President's Cup, they kept saying it on the broadcast. They, if there's a tie, they both win. They both would have taken home a trophy. I'm not kidding. Yeah, that seems uh, that seems dumb. That would have been kind of funny, though. Um, that's really about all I had, though. We went a pretty long podcast. I'd remind you one more time, go see uh, LB's University Avenue across from Kroger. Greg's all fired up about the lane train. He's got the Lane Kiffin Bacon Wraps uh, Filet Special for 10 bucks, 6-ounce filet. $15 Keith Carter Special 8-ounce Bacon Wrap Filet. He's, uh, they've been... Uh, Churning and burning over there at LB's. He uh, keeps texting me about the Lane Kiffin effect. He's real fired up about that. Uh, go demand some gambling picks from Greg, and then also go demand some meats. Got plate lunches, all kinds of stuff. Really appreciate Greg's partnership. I'm going to have him back on the show on Friday. I guess we can do a Thursday-Friday thing. Like, we could do one recapping signing Yeah, let's do it yeah, post-signing day, and then we'll just do the regular Friday. That's what I figured. There's enough there, because this week is all centered around Wednesday. So we'll have two more shows for you. We'll go Thursday and Friday, back-to-back days, of the pick-up, LB's Pick'em results on Thursday. Um, and then I'll have Greg back on on Friday to make some pitch as we head down the home stretch of the NFL season into bowl season. Uh, but anyway, go see Greg, University Avenue, Crossing Kroger, best place in the state to get meat, no doubt. Um, unless you got anything else, I'm getting out of here. All right, man. Awesome. For Michael Borky, I'm Brian Scott Rippey. Uh, we appreciate the patience. Uh, if you like what you heard today, go rate and review. Subscribe to the uh, podcast. We're uh, oh, we got to address one more thing. We uh, we're still in flux with the name. We uh, we've got to find a name. We uh, Joey Fresh Potter was uh, shot down by the superiors. Yeah, well, he's just a 
crafty old man anyway, right? We're victims of the system. Maybe that should be the name of the podcast. Anyway, we appreciate you. Uh, we appreciate you uh, listening, and we'll be back at it on Thursday. Super Talk Mississippi Media Production.